Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Coming to America, baby. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're wrapping up our Eddie in the 80s series with another John Landis movie. 1988's Coming to America. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you can't find a man to satisfy you, then you should see if you can go an hour with The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's turn it over to Games Master Stephen Smart, currently on break from mopping the floors at McDowell's to find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, from 2003, directed by Donald Petrie and starring Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. Congrats to this week's winner, at Donna, W29, who guessed it on Image 2. You are entered into the 2017 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys, and see you later. And we got a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on Beverly Hills Cop. That's right. It was so funny listening to you guys debate the villain's logic in this silly action comedy. I don't know if it was designed to be scrutinized that closely. I love what Eddie Murphy does here and think the action is over the top but so much fun. All the side characters are entertaining as well. I think Beverly Hills Cop holds up extremely well. Your rank 105, my rank 52. Not designed to be scrutinized that closely. Ben, how long have you been listening to this show? (laughs) (laughs) We may not be doing it minute by minute, but still. (laughs) (laughs) It is a sort of stock in trade. (laughs) (laughs) Have you listened to our Rush episode? (laughs) Oh my. Oh my. I got a great I got a great episode. Best of the women. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, you say that Ben, but this was nominated for an Oscar. So, I think it's fair <laughs> to dig in a <laughs> little right. bit with it. That's right. It is we must scrutinize the arts. <laughs> I'm putting that on a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Andy, let's do trailers. So my trailer this week, Pete, is a film coming out uh, called Walk of Fame, directed by Jesse Thomas. Um, mm, I, sounds great. Tell me more. Yeah, this this is a, a first time uh, st- a film for Jesse Thomas, who is a writer, producer, director, and even appears as an actor in the film. So I'm curious how uh, the film is. It's definitely a, a very first timey sort of thing. That being said, Jesse Thomas. Uh, did manage to score some big people in this. Malcolm McDowell pops up in this film. Um, I mean, some big people. Malcolm McDowell's probably the biggest in here. I mean, you have Chris Kattan, uh, Scott Eastwood, Jamie Kennedy, uh, Laura Ashley Samuels. It's it's an interesting uh, looking film. I don't know if it actually looks very good at all. I am, you know, I don't know. I think it looks uh, it looks cute ish. But I don't know if it's something I'd ever watch. Uh, the story is a motley crew of aspiring performers come under the guidance of an eccentric and volatile acting coach, per IMDb. The way the trailer looks, you have Scott Eastwood, who works at a uh, call center, who ends up uh, bumping into this girl, Laura Ashley Samuels, kind of falls for her and finds out that she's in this uh, this uh, acting 
group and he joins so that he can kind of hook up with her. And, you know, I mean, there are some funny moments throughout the trailer. I, I will give it that. And so, uh, and it's got a cast that for a first film, I'm, I, you know, I mean, I'm impressed with some of the, the names that this, uh, that Jesse Thomas managed to get for this. So, um, I don't know if it's actually going to be any good at all, but, um, you know, I mean, it caught my attention enough for me to watch the trailer. So I'll give it that. What'd you think? Okay, a couple of points. One, the trailer is pretty bad, right? The trailer is, it. I don't think it really tells you uh, adequately what the story is really about, right? It focuses instead, oh, yeah. I think, on the jokes. And and some of the jokes are funny. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I like some of it. Uh, like you said, I like the cast. I actually like Scott Eastwood a lot. He's done a, a number of things. Uh, he's had a number of small parts in in uh, uh, big movies uh, that, that I think are interesting. He's had some big parts in, in smaller movies that I also think are interesting. So I like, I think he's a charismatic guy. I like him on screen. But I think the trailer doesn't necessarily serve the movie well. And because because it's a trope that we've seen before, uh, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason, right? Sometimes the cliche nails it and it's funny and you get to laugh at it and just lose yourself. And sometimes it does it really poorly uh, and and you don't. I, I don't think I can tell from the trailer if this is one or the other. I don't I, I honestly don't know what to what to think about it. It's not a great trailer, but it could be for a, a funny uh, lose yourself in the moment kind of film. Yeah, it could be one of those ones that you uh, turn on really late at night and then uh, you just can't turn off uh, and you can't fall asleep because it's dumb enough to just draw you in, right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of the the way these movies work. It right. looks like it could be that sort of thing. So I mean, whoever know, thought I, whoever thought Office Space was going to be the the just h- hilarious film that it ended up being. I mean, from you know that that's another one of those movies. I I actually don't recall the trailer off the top of my head, so making that comparison isn't entirely fair. Uh, but but it is one of those kinds of films. This could be one of those films. I don't know. Who, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, this movie is going to be opening right now. It's a limited release, March twenty fourth, just here in the U.S. No other. Uh, release plans beyond that so i guess we'll see if it gets much of a release anywhere um and what people think when it does come out so there you go my trailer andy is all nighter new film from gavin weeson writer seth owen uh both guys we don't i don't know a whole lot about uh uh, gavin weeson is director of uh, uh the art of getting by from 2011 and he did a short called kill the day in 2008 uh, that's all I've got for his IMDb credits. Uh, there's no bio, no nothing. So this is a this is a fairly uh, early film for him. Writer Seth Owen. He he wrote Morgan, and that was a trailer pick. I think I, I think I had this trailer pick a little while ago, and uh, uh, it, it's about a, a bioengineered um, uh, half person. Uh, that was uh, released in 2016, late 2016, I think. I haven't seen it uh, because it didn't get all that great reviews. Yeah, kind of. Did you see it? Pretty. I Did didn't see it, it, but you didn't see it. I no, but I kept seeing uh, uh, reviews of it saying how bad it was. Yeah. So here's a, here's the thing about this trailer. It's another one of those all nighter. It it is another one of those that I think is sort of unpredictable by the trailer itself. It is a story that. I feel like I've seen before. Uh, it's an all-night uh, gag-filled search for uh, the the missing, you know, party girl. For all we know, we we actually don't know where she's gone. Is missing, and and so this uh, the the twist on this one instead of the the um, hangover style friends search for friends film the 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 
twist on this one is that one of the people in the search is the girl's dad, and the dad is played by J.K. Simmons, the great J.K. Simmons. Uh, the uh, His partner in crime is the ex-boyfriend, uh, played by Emile Hirsch. Uh, so I'm interested in this trailer because... Uh, of these people, or of this pairing. I have liked Emile Hirsch for a long time. We did a trailer pick uh, uh, for him not long ago uh, for the film The Autopsy of Jane Doe, uh, which was released uh, recently and, and has received mixed reviews, um, but not about his performance, more about the film, you know, uh, being not what it promised to be, as far as I gather. I haven't seen that one either. But, uh, you know, on, on those points alone, I think it has more going for it. Um, and uh, uh, it may be punching above its weight. But uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what these guys have come up with uh, and how they managed to pull together a script that got these guys interested. What do you think? I, I definitely agree. I think there's, uh, I mean, there looks to be some fun chemistry with uh, J.K. Simmons and Emile Hirsch on screen. That, for me, uh, you know, kind of sells the concept and I think it'd be fun to see those two especially knowing that J.K. Simmons plays as he calls himself a, a procurer I believe or he's in yeah, procurement right. so he's in procurement uh, something like that yeah I, so I'm curious to see exactly where the story ends up going um, you know it could be fun but you're right it's one of those where it's like it may take uh, me just kind of being in a place where I'm just I mean maybe I'm really sick and I'm just uh, catch this streaming and then I, I can't turn it off so uh, but no, I mean, it looks fun. I, I, mean, I love these guys. I mean, it's, it's a great cast. So um, we'll see. We'll see. All right. So we'll leave it on a we'll see. The dates, uh, it hits U.S. Limited on March 17th. It hits the internet on March 24th. All right. Uh, Andy, it's my 21st birthday. Do you think perhaps just once I might use the bathroom by myself? Once upon a time, in a faraway kingdom, lived a handsome prince. He was attended by devoted servants. Do you think perhaps just once I might use the bathroom by myself? Most amusing, sir. Wipers! And engaged by royal decree. Why? Why can't I find my own wife? We've gone to a great deal of trouble to select for you a very fine wife. I want a woman that's going to arouse my intellect as well as my loins. Where will you find such a woman? In America. So he traveled across the sea to the land of opportunity, which is where the fairy tale ends and our story begins. Coming to America, Andy, 1988, American romantic comedy film directed by John Landis, who has become somebody of a series on our show, an unintentional (laughs) series. Uh, It was uh, written by David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein. Based on a story by Eddie Murphy himself, stars Murphy and Arsenio Hall and James Earl Jones and John Amos and Madge Sinclair and Sherry Headley. Uh, what did you think of Coming to America as it stands to wrap up our Eddie in the 80s series? Well, this one really did not hold up for me. Um, I remember enjoying it quite a bit at the time. Uh, I haven't seen it since. And I I do remember, uh, I, or I should say, I did remember certain elements of the story. I mean, obviously, I remember, you know, you know, this is an African prince who comes to Queens to find a queen because uh, he wants to find um, 
a, a woman who really, you know, it's that whole thing. Somebody who doesn't know that he's the prince is, and isn't marrying him just because he's a prince. All of that sort of the stuff. Cinderella story is really kind of what it is. Um, I kind of remembered all that. I really remembered the stuff about McDowell's, although I could never remember what it was called, but I knew it was a total McDonald's ripoff. And that always cracked me up. Um, and, you know, I remembered the the makeup and stuff, but I didn't really remember much else. And I think there's probably good reason for that, because I, all in all, I just really found uh, just the, the story itself pretty lacking, um, uh, sloppy, uh, very dated. I just didn't think much held up, and I had a, a kind of a rough time watching it. What about you? Yeah, yeah, this is a tough one. Uh, this it, it put me in kind of a dark place. Um, I... I thought the jokes took too long. Most of the visual gags didn't land well. It is, as you say, it's that age-old story. I pegged it to something like Aladdin or like the the one of the Forty Thieves stories, the Arabian Nights. Um, you know, and and that it's as you say, it's that you know the princess marries the guy for love and not uh, because he's rich. And it, it's a story we've seen so many times, but it just did not land well for me. It was so 80s so so 80s from the clothes to the music to the hair my god the hair uh and i uh, it just i i didn't laugh enough i did laugh in a couple of areas and these were the areas that i found i missed like i misremembered them as being more part of beverly hills cop and that is the character stuff as soon as arsenio hall and eddie murphy go into their character bits I had a great time, uh, but those really sort of relegated themselves to SNL kind of skit level stuff and and uh, certainly didn't carry uh, the film. I think that, you know, it's one of those films that I had a sense that at the time it probably just really um, hit with the audiences because it was fun. It was Eddie Murphy. Uh, it, it had some laughs. Everything just kind of felt very much of the time. And to that end, it's like, okay, I can really get into this and enjoy it. In retrospect, as you actually look at it much more critically and really kind of look at what's actually here, I mean, you just find just a lot of holes and a lot of stuff that just doesn't hold up. And it may have worked at the peak of Eddie's uh, just his career when everybody loved watching his stuff and what he could bring to the table. But now it just, it, there, it, it doesn't have that kind of holding it up anymore and it has to stand on its own. And I just don't think it does, which is, it's a shame, but, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, it does have elements that are interesting. It does have elements that I did enjoy. It's not just an, an out and out terrible film. Um, it's just, I wish that it held up as it did in my memory. So let's talk about the script. Uh, the script comes with delightfully some controversy around it, and that gives us even more to talk about than otherwise we may. Yeah, uh, the film, um, it's, it says, you know, based on a story by Eddie Murphy, he says that, you know, he kind of came up with this idea on a bus and, uh, you know, this whole idea of this African prince coming, uh, over here and all this stuff. And then and then these two guys, uh, Sheffield and, and Blaustein, were brought in to actually take Eddie's treatment that he'd kind of started and create this script. Um, but then, you know, you get this whole thing with... Uh, now, granted, this came out um, years after the, the film. Um, Art Buckwald, who is a, um, a humorist and writer, he sued 
Paramount Pictures because apparently this was actually 1990, so two years after the movie. He sued because he said that he had written a a screen treatment in 1982 called It's a Crude, Crude World, later renamed King for a Day, that was pitched to Jeffrey Katzenberg at Paramount with the intention of starring Eddie Murphy, who was uh, under contract with Paramount. And um, it just, you know, it's the... The uh, synopsis for his script sounded very much like what uh, ended up on the screen here. Um, Paramount had optioned his treatment. They commissioned several people to write it. John Landis was actually considered as the director several times over the course of this. Um, It ended up going through development hell. Paramount abandoned it, sent it over to, I think they sold it to Warner Brothers, who started developing it. Meanwhile, back on the Paramount lot... Eddie Murphy came up with this idea, and uh, they started working on it. And then Warner Brothers heard about that and dropped this one, which was the Art Buckwald one. And of course, he sued. Ended up, he ended up winning. And this was this was a really kind of critical uh, case for um, uh, for screenwriters, really, because and and for studios, because uh, well, several things came out of this. Um, one, the studios really started policing scripts that they received. And it, it became this whole thing where basically if it's an unsolicited script, they won't even open it. They'll just send it right back. That was like the big um, litigious thing that came out of this whole thing. The second thing is because when Paramount lost, they um, uh, used what people call Hollywood accounting. And they claimed that despite the movie's uh, big gross, it actually earned no net profit due to the fact that uh, all the prints and, or prints and advertising, all that, all those extra costs. And that is how the net profit definition apparently was in Art Buckwold's contract. And they said he is owed nothing. And so the courts were very upset with this whole thing. And, um, you know, they were worried about it going farther. So Paramount ended up settling with Art Buckwald. It's this huge thing. You can actually read all about this in this book called Fatal Subtraction, The Inside Story of Buckwald versus Paramount by Pierce O'Donnell, who was the lawyer who represented Buckwald. But um, yeah, this this really opened up this whole thing about the way that Hollywood did its accounting and everything. And John Landis actually talks about this case and says, um, the great thing because of this whole thing is uh, the only people who actually benefited from the lawsuit were him and Eddie Murphy because it actually forced Paramount to open their books. And so they ended up getting more money. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh yes. Do you think it was for the greater good? Well, sure. I mean, you know, it's it's good to be safe with with uh, you know creative ideas that come in. I mean, it's it's such a game. You know, I mean, we talked about this with um, with uh, Beverly Hills Cop last week. How everybody's like, oh no, it was my idea. No, it was my idea. It's very easy to come up with an idea. It's it's much more difficult to actually write the script, and. I think what this does, and it doesn't sound like, and this is something I didn't even know. I thought uh, Buckwald actually had written a full script, but all he had was just kind of a treatment. Um, now, granted, a treatment is, it's like an outline. There's a lot of story there. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's probably for the better that they're just being more cautious with that sort of stuff. And certainly 
the fact that um, it's made uh, people pay more attention to how Hollywood uh, does some of its accounting, as for, or how these these studios do some of their accounting, and and try to make pictures look like they're not making that much money, so that they don't have to pay out out as much on the back end deals. I mean, I I think in the end it's probably for the best, but it certainly, if nothing, makes everything a lot more litigious. Well, and you didn't even uh, bring up the other uh, lawsuit about this because this isn't the only lawsuit about this m- this movie. Uh, uh, writer Shelby Gregory also had a claim on this, and he did write a full screenplay, but I'm not sure it. it I I only want to include it because it, it is of some dubious sourcing. Uh, but this article in People Magazine actually has uh, uh, Murphy saying that talking about it, and it says uh, 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 Gregory claims his screenplay. Toto, the African prince, was given to Murphy by a man who says he's the son of a Nigerian chief, though he has no known address, and as far as Murphy knows, was last spotted in an L.A. disco doing the bunga bunga. <laughs> that, that delights me, because it's like the first, uh, the first Nigerian prince scam. <laughs> Who knew it started right, right here with this movie? Um, apparently, Gregory also petitioned a ten million dollar suit against Murphy and the screenwriters, and I don't know how that one ended. It is again, it's of dubious sourcing. I found this. I managed to trace it to uh, the Spy, October nineteen eighty eight magazine, where it, uh, he does talk about both Buckwald and Shelby Gregory and uh, uh, the consternation so spy 1988 october 88 you can find out more about this well john landis does say you know this is very common at least it was back then where and just like i said people would say hey that was my idea i sent a script in and it happened all the time but because these people were just like you know regular joe schmoes it never amounted to anything he said it was only because it was art buckwald and he was this big figure and everyone knew who he was and he was you know a friend of the press that it turned into this big thing um and like I said, I mean, it, it probably did end up, um, you know, serving a purpose. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, these are how these things get shaped, right? Yeah, Spill right. Donald's and coffee it, in your lap, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it it makes for some really interesting stories. And I just think, as a thought experiment, it's it's fascinating to imagine what it would be like if we weren't quite so litigious and quite so protective. Is there a dearth of new ideas as a result of how protective uh, and how walled? Uh, screen uh, the uh, uh, you know the act of acquiring new screenplays has become and uh, you know you wonder if we would have quite so many uh, spin-off big superhero movies um, if you know if, if this case didn't set off you know what is the alternate future what is the the multiverse in which you know the, there is a more open ecosystem for uh, writers and ideas I don't know well, I will say to that end, um, there maybe it's just uh, modern times, but there certainly are um, good resources um, now for yeah, for people right. to uh, to access, probably better than there were uh, 10, 20 years ago. Now, being online, I mean, you don't have to necessarily live in Hollywood. There are some great online resources for ways that you can actually submit projects and have people look at them. There are so many uh, different uh, places where you can go to these pitch fests and all this sort of stuff. There are a lot of ways that people can access people at studios with ideas. So it is actually a pretty, um, I think it's actually a good time for that. Now, if they're 
buying those ideas and, and doing stuff with them, I can't speak to that. But at least I think that it is a better time than it was probably in the, yeah. in the mid to late 80s. Well, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the SNL feel of, of a lot of this, and that's what, what some of this feels like to me, this overall structure of the film. It feels very much like kind of an SNL uh, a series of sketches all tied together until about halfway through the second act where uh, uh, the romance kind of kicks in in earnest. And that is for good reason. The the credited screenwriters, uh, Sheffield and Blaustein, were uh, uh, writers on SNL from 80 to 83 uh, together. And they've done a number of other things uh, in, in this vein, but um, coming to America was certainly a big one for them. Several uh, things just to comment on with that. Um, one, I think it's very telling that when James Earl Jones talked to them about the script, he said, you guys may be good writers, but you don't know a thing about Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very true because it's just completely, uh, just a completely farcical land that they came up with. The other thing was uh, the scene that really struck me as just one of the most Saturday Night Live sketchish sort of scenes is when... When uh, Akeem and uh, his assistant, uh, played by uh, Arsenio Hall, are in the bar meeting women, and it's it's like this weird, it's like a weird sketch where it's like they're sitting there and they're just, it's like they're interviewing possible dates. It's such a strange scene. It's like I couldn't figure out like why is he, you know, talking to women like this? Where it's like they're sitting down. It felt very much like a speed date sort of thing. It was weird. Yes, with zero setup weird... at all in the no, story. There's right. no setup. There's no reason for them to be doing this. Plus, there's the the really strange worship of the devil girl. I mean, it's like that was so out of left field. It's like set set me up for something, you know. Give yeah. me something to understand where this is all coming from. Yeah, right. It, 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 I think they they had said in the script, right? There there is a line. Well, I need to go find a a, a princess. I need to go find a queen, and that was not justification enough for the speed dating setup. Like there was a mechanic that was employed through the editing and that that just was unjustified. And the editing was terrible. When you as soon as you get to the Arsenio Hall bit, uh, where he is uh he is one of the dates as well as the he's at the table with himself. Right. As he's the ugly barfly. The timing was way off on these shots, right? Did you notice this? It was like, oh my goodness, talk about ill-placed speed bumps in the, on the road. It was it, it was really jarring uh, how yeah. long it felt like the characters were staring across the, ta- in, the table into the middle distance at the other character before we'd get a cut. It was an eternity. I agree. But I but agree. but now I I do want to say like on the uh, you know on the plus side the characters uh, were generally funny. That scene is not a good example of it. But the the barbershop I think was great. I really enjoyed it. That's when I had a good time. And so you know I hold that up as an example for what I've been looking for in this Eddie Murphy series all along and haven't gotten. And it's it's a shame that I feel like I had to wait to get it in this movie. Uh, which is generally not as good. But what did you think of that? What is they're playing all the other characters in makeup? I agree. I, I mean, Eddie said that he really wanted to do a film that um, was more of a character piece. He wanted to play more of a character. Um, and so that's why he came up with Prince Akeem and and kind of treated that that way because he didn't want to do another movie where it's just Eddie Murphy playing you know, a cop, Eddie Murphy as, you know, a bum, whatever. He wanted to do something totally different. So I get that. I appreciate that he did that. And I enjoy Prince Akeem. It's a nice character. But you're right. When he gets to play the the barber or the um, the singer or the uh, the old Jew, 
Uh, it's just so much fun watching him. I mean, he really comes to life taking on those personas. And I think, I mean, this is really kind of the start of Eddie Murphy using um, special effects makeup to really become other people. And it became a huge thing for him. And he does an incredible job um, with all of them. I mean, regardless of what you think the quality of the movie is, I think that this is a real, uh, very interesting specialty that he is kind of... uh, created for himself of just becoming a different person with this makeup on. Yeah, that was, I, I think, a real blessing. And and maybe we couldn't do quite this kind of film, uh, you, you know, earlier in his career. Maybe he wasn't, he, he sort of wasn't trusted enough, certainly wasn't trusted enough as a an actor, um, you know, a, a, when he was doing Trading Places. But, um, you know, I, I think it's great to let him shine in that in this way and and that's that's assuming that the makeup effects were ready earlier yeah you know i don't i don't know if rick baker would have been able to come up with the effects that he uh came up with for this um before this like the confluence of events that you need to have you know take that, that need to come together in order to deliver this and and make them really viable um that's that's what we're looking for so i uh shall we shall we talk about uh john landis again yes <laughs> Did you learn yeah, anything is, new uh, from about John Landis watching this film? What I found so interesting is that uh, this is a man who, uh, you know, I mean, he had had a string of flops leading up to this. And, um, you know, Eddie Murphy um, knew he was having some uh, some difficulty with the box office and so hired him to direct this. Um, they ended up having some squabbles on set and it ended up creating uh, quite a bit of friction and uh, killed their working relationship um, until they reunited for Beverly Hills Cop 3 um, six years later. But um, some some quotes from the two of them, which I think are illuminating. John Landis in 2005 in an interview with Collider said, The guy on Trading Places was young and full of energy and curious and funny and fresh and great. The guy on Coming to America was the pig of the world, but I still think he's wonderful in the movie. So... <laughs> You can get a sense of his opinion <laughs> of Eddie at the time. And I think this actually speaks to, uh, I feel like it was Trading Places we talked about how Eddie said it was the last time that he had fun making a movie, right? Yeah, right. So so Eddie Murphy, he, uh, in a Rolling Stone interview in 1989, the year right after this, this is him talking about the issues that he had with John Landis um, on set. He said, we had a tussling confrontation. We didn't come to blows. Personalities didn't mesh. I grabbed him and he thought I was playing. So he tried to grab my balls and I pushed him away. But I wasn't kidding. He was doing some silly stuff that made me mad. He directed me in trading places when I was just starting out as a kid, but he was still treating me like a kid five years later during Coming to America. And I hired him to direct the movie. I was going to direct Coming to America myself, but I knew that Landis had just done three effed up pictures in a row and that his career was hanging by a thread after the Twilight Zone trial. I figured the guy was nice to me when I did Trading Places, so I'd give him a shot. I was going out of my way to help this guy, and he effed me over. Now he's got a hit picture on his resume, a movie that made over $200 million, as opposed to him coming off a couple of effed up movies, which is where I'd rather see him be right now. 
you know, it it it's frustrating. At, though, as you say, these the the stuff that that continues to kind of come out about these stories as people start digging into them. There was another uh, article. Uh, this is also in the People article I referenced earlier that uh, where it speaks actually about uh, Deborah Nadulman, who was the costume designer on this film, and also Landis's wife. We have talked about her before, uh, and it this passage comes out of it. As the titular head of a new generation of black talent, Murphy seems to feel a duty to police racism in the entertainment industry, taking a moment at this year's Oscars, for example, to chide the Academy for awarding only three statuettes to black actors in its 60-year history. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it was reportedly Murphy's reaction to a racial slur that launched his stormy feud with John Landis, the controversial director of The Twilight Zone, the movie, whom Murphy handpicked to guide America. According to people on set, costume designer Deborah Nadulman, who is also Mrs. John Landis, was reportedly overheard complaining in racial terms one day when Murphy had kept her waiting for more than an hour. When Murphy got wind of it, he was so furious, he grabbed Landis by the neck and demanded an apology. So, you know, who knows what this is all about. It we, seems like we've been talking about actors who kind of fall apart with directors lately, but uh, this is just another example of an interesting uh, sort of creative relationship that uh, was sort of torn asunder one reason or another. Yeah, and I will say, hey, I'm, I'm at least glad that they they mended their bridges and they found a way to come together six years later to do Beverly Hills Cop 3, regardless of the quality of the film. I And I haven't heard anything about the relationship after that, yeah. but I'm at least glad that they you know, found a way to get past this. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, there is some rich cultural uh, fabric that knits together the first shot, last shot. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, is there ever? <laughs> <laughs> rich uh, yeah, John Landis knew we were going to be doing this in this podcast all these years later <laughs> he did he knew that the uh, uh, the first shot uh, I, I'm going to take the first shot because I know you uh, you have some things to say about the last shot oh and the first uh, shot go I, for it well I'm, ex- I'm excited about Do it, it. Okay. Do it. The, the Paramount logo uh, becomes the first shot as we fly past this the mountain below the clouds and into a lush valley of Zamunda, where we fly toward the capital of the African kingdom. And it, it very much sets the tone for uh, this the fairy tale aspect of, of this film. And I think it, I think actually the opening shot and the opening flyby uh, does does a good job of that. I would I yeah. would highlight that as a real strength of the movie. Yes, I completely agree. The last shot, on the other hand, um, it, it just kind of uh, comes really quickly and surprisingly. Uh, the last shot of the film, after the sudden wedding of uh, Akeem and his lovely bride, um, we get a shot of her dad and his parents, the king and queen of Zamunda, waving them goodbye as they're driven away. Um, and then it's just kind of a weird moment because uh, we have this... This thing where uh, Lisa's dad is, I don't know if he's just a little too gregarious or what it is, but then we get uh, Akeem's mom look at him like with a like a judgmental look. And so he kind of tones himself down and just kind of waves as the as the as the married couple drive away. And that's kind of the end of the film. It's a visual scolding. Visual scolding. That's exactly how we that's, end the movie. That's how we end the movie. And <laughs> and I don't know why they would want to end on that note. It's a terrible note to end a movie. Well, Pretty much any it, movie. Here's the thing. The whole ending feels that way, right? I mean, it, 
tell me I'm wrong, but oh. from the moment <laughs> when we leave America and end up back in Zamunda, it feels so tacked on. Everything all of a sudden is just like, what just happened? This is how we're ending the movie? It was garbage. It was the the ending made me just so mad when all of a sudden uh, we lost all sense of storytelling and just said, oh, let's just end the movie right now and let's have a, this big surprise with Lisa show up in Zamunda. Ha, ha, ha. Surprise, everybody. Terrible. Absolutely yep. terrible. It was terrible. But, you know, after all, the title is Coming to America. They really didn't think through anything beyond that. <laughs> right. uh, that's certainly what it felt like to me. It was uh, it was as stitched on as it ever was. It was an excuse for another really long train on a wedding dress and, uh, and uh, a, a reveal that ended up being um, not terribly rewarding. I, I mean, it, yeah. it, it wasn't like it was supposed to be... Uh, I mean, I guess it was technically supposed to be a surprise, uh, but uh, only to oh, but it was, yeah. those on screen. The only other note I have about the first shot, last shot, because it's a terrible pairing, is just the fact that the first shot, this very likely is the first time that a logo actually really becomes integrated into the actual first shot of the film. Um, it's not just like uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark where you've got the Paramount logo, kind of the drawing of the mountain that dissolves that, to an actual yeah. mountain. This is actually, and, and, and really they couldn't have done this before 86, I think is when Paramount introduced the uh, the CG logo with The Golden Child, interestingly, another Eddie Murphy movie. Um, we get this uh, this chance for them now to actually play around with the logo in a fun way uh, and actually uh, integrate it into the shot. And I think that's so fun to see. I, I had a great time seeing them actually fly past the mountain. And and Zamunda's behind the Paramount Mountain. Who knew? Um, I, I love that. I mean, it's, you know, then you see Universal doing it um, a year later with the Burbs. And it really has become this thing uh, now where I, logos are much more commonly integrated into films. And I think that's kind of a fun way to really kind of tie it all together. I do, too. Again, another great strength of the film, the CG logo that becomes part of the first shot. (laughs) Well said, Andy. Uh, Casting was done by Jackie Birch. uh, And uh, we have, obviously, Eddie Murphy as Prince Akim Joffer, Prince of Zamunda, Randy Watson, a soul singer with a fictional band called Sexual Chocolate, and Saul, the Jewish barbershop customer, as well as Clarence, the owner of said barbershop. I, you know, I will say, playing four characters, he creates four unique characters. I actually think Eddie Murphy has an incredible talent at this, and I enjoy watching him on screen, even if the film doesn't end up working. So uh, you know, I'll I give him that. Not, could not agree more. That is every time he stepped on as character, because the rest of the story was so boring. Whenever he stepped on, whether he was singing a sexual chocolate or is you know doing the uh, barbershop bit, I thought I thought Saul, uh, the the Saul and Clarence bits in the barbershop were terrific. Just terrific. Uh, and you'll notice they never credit Murphy as Saul at the end. They give Eddie Murphy right. the credits on everything else, but they never credit him as, as the uh, as the Jewish barbershop customer. I think that's that is a it was just great. As if no one would have believed it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, so so do you not like him as Prince Akeem? Because I actually really like him as Prince Akeem. I think he has this this uh, a little bit of this naivete and he's just he's just so uh positive about things and even when he's like 
you know, getting milkshakes thrown in his face and he's he's mopping the floor and everything. I just I don't know. I just found him refreshing. And when he's, you know, he's waking up in the morning and standing on his, his the little uh, uh, the porch on his apartment, he's just like, good morning, everybody. And they're like, hey, shut the hell up. And he's just, yes, yes. F you. Yeah, F you too. <laughs> yeah, there are some bits. There are some bits. So then what is it that falls apart? Right. Because I, I do. I, I guess, you know, you point out all these little moments. Moments and and I do like the moments rather than the entire sequences of of makeup art, you know. Um, but but as a whole, the thread I I get tired of it so quickly. Like I I, I feel like I, I understand the character early enough, and I get the walking on rose petals, and then I feel just embarrassed for James Earl Jones, uh, and uh, and and I I have moved through the stages of grief about the movie uh and i'm i just become sort of fatigued uh by the character because i i I feel like that same character maybe in a better movie would would be um you know would be a better experience i guess i think it's the script i mean really i think that's what it all falls down to is that the script itself was just not as strong as it should have been and I think that Eddie Murphy can pull off an, an interesting character, whether it's a Jew, an old Jewish man or an African prince. I just think that because of uh, script issues, it ends up making it more painful to watch all of the Prince Akeem bits because, I mean, that is the bulk of the film. I, I will just say, you know, only Eddie could wear an outfit with an ocelot on it. <laughs> it's pretty... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impressive, you know. And uh, yeah. you know, speaking of, uh, we might as well just jump to James Earl Jones real quick. Oh, only he could wear Mufasa on, <laughs> know, right? on his outfit. He carries it <laughs> off quite well. And the ocelot and lion both had uh, cubic zirconium eyes, which I think is hilarious <laughs> that they <laughs> look that way. That was it was it was tough uh, for me watching James Earl Jones in here and and I I don't know I mean I know I probably shouldn't hold him in as high esteem as I as, as I do I mean he's he is but a man uh, but yet seeing him parade around in this movie uh, I had a hard time with it. Again, it's just the script. But yeah, yeah. watching him have lines like, uh, you, know, "You don't have sex with your with your uh, bathing girls." I do. Yeah, I was yeah. Like, James oh, Earl Jones just God. said that. I feel a little dirty. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly right. I feel like my dad just said that to me. That's terrible. <laughs> The only other thing I was going to say about James Earl Jones, um, I mean, because, you know, I love him. I mean, he's James Earl Jones. You know how we were talking about before how John Landis has these moments in his movies where a character breaks uh, breaks the fourth wall and looks directly into the, the camera, like looking at the audience. Yeah. And I couldn't quite tell, but it does kind of look like James Earl Jones has that moment when he's talking about tying his shoelaces, where he's like, believe me, I tied my own shoes once. It is an overrated experience. It kind of looks like he looks into the camera when he says that. I couldn't quite tell. Definitely the dog later <laughs> looks into the yeah. camera. Which is I actually a had a note choice. that Murphy did too uh, earlier in the did film, he? that he actually got a look at the camera too. But um, I, I feel like they weren't they weren't real obvious and weren't that long. So um, yeah. it, it was, it was kind of tough to discern. Uh, the only right. other note I had about James Earl Jones was that I, <laughs> it's rumored that the part w- uh, was almost played by Sidney Poitier, and uh, that actually is an experience I think that would have been worse. Like oh, that would yes. have been that would have been my my grandfather talking to me about having sex with the painting. That would have been <laughs> horrible. 
anyway, oh uh, let's go. Let's back up a little bit and talk about Arsenio Hall as Semi, Akeem's friend. He also played Reverend Brown, Morris the Barber, and, as you mentioned already, an ugly barfly. You know, Arsenio Hall, I just, uh, I don't think he's a great actor. I mean, I can see why he became a talk show host. He certainly has that presence. But, I mean, there were times where he was acting, and I was like, ugh, he really just seems like he's acting right now. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I definitely got that, too. And, I, you know, I know, at least at the time, as I understand it, he and Eddie Murphy were, were very close friends. I'm, I'm assuming that they are, you know, close friends to this day. But that is, I, I also remember, like, when the Arsenio Hall came out, I think it was Eddie Murphy that was his first guest, right? And that was that was part of their you know, launch plan was get somebody as big as, as uh, Eddie in here. He went on and did, um, he did Harlem Nights. He was in Harlem Nights as Crying Man. I, Harlem Nights, uh, that was uh, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, and Red Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have very little memory of that movie. That was Eddie Murphy finally directing. He says that he was supposed yeah. to direct Coming to America, Give it to John Landis. Uh, this is what he ended up directing the very next yeah. uh, year. Uh, since then, apart from the Arsenio Hall uh, show, um, he's he's done some voiceover work, a uh, bunch of animation, but not a whole lot. He, he kind of landed where he needed to land. He's such a an interesting time capsule of a person though right yeah that's the thing i find interesting about arsenio hall is he so much represents the 90s with his talk show and that whole woo 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 that whole thing that it was like such a weird chant that it it even made it into a robin williams bit in aladdin (laughs) yeah right exactly yeah i mean you talk about a guy who is like you know kind of exhibits the life is long have lots of careers (laughs) That's any of all, and and uh, you really got to celebrate the guy for that. I I actually think um, uh, when he was semi, uh, I fatigued of him just like I fatigued of Akim. But when he was in character and in makeup, he was also great. I really enjoyed watching all the barbershop scenes. I love him as the Reverend. I think the Reverend was hysterical. I think it was great addition. Uh, so I I. Um, no, I had a good I had a good time watching him overall. I think he's I think he's a very talented guy. Again, as you say, uh, with a not great script. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do see John Amos pop up here as Cleo McDowell. Ah, uh, yes, so the founder of McDowell's. I I love the <laughs> bit when he's uh, caught uh, reading the McDonald's uh, operating manual. <laughs> Possibly my favorite moment in the film. That may be uh, that's an interesting thing we should talk about that the McDonald's McDowell's relationship because they man they uh, they hang their hat on that loud and proud uh and and it was legit. Yeah, it was. It was. They actually were worried that McDonald's would completely turn it down because I mean, you know, it just doesn't sound like something that they would want. But McDonald's actually liked it because they as a company are actually depicted in the script as really trying to uh pursue these guys and and following up with their due diligence to close down this place. So they were yeah. happy with that and uh, they let them do it. They let them go with the golden arcs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really funny and uh, a, a lovely bit when they, they show an exterior shot of, of McDowell's restaurant with the golden arcs everywhere and outside there's somebody taking pictures and it turns out that is uh, one of those examples of, uh, of you know, 
uh, art imitating life, imitating art. Um, the the local they had received, as you say, at McDonald's was totally okay with this. They had clearance to do this, and they had permission, and they had uh, everything they needed to go about. They just didn't tell the local franchise where they were shooting. Uh, that they had clearance to do this. And so the local franchise actually had sent a photographer over to start documenting uh, this I- incredible infraction uh, to the set. And um, yeah, I thought that was that was pretty funny. You, you like the, it's, it's like the little dog barking at you, you know, <laughs> the little dog take, trying to take down a car. And it's great that uh, they actually filmed it in a Wendy's. <laughs> that is actually maybe the greatest surprise. If McDonald's is so okay with it, come on. Right, well I know. Put it in the, you know, in the, the real thing. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, but John Amos, I mean, he's he's funny. He works well as uh, as uh, Lisa's father. Um, I, but I, I, it hits this point, especially when he finds out who Akeem is, that he's royalty and all that. And the scenes when uh, everybody keeps coming over to his house toward the uh, the third act of the script. I mean, it just like his. The comedy with him just wasn't working for me. It was just kind of painful as he was just overly excited about everybody. I agree. He's, I mean, he's not a, he, I think John Amos is a wonderful actor. I really do. And he was, this was not a, a great part for him beyond the script. I mean, that his level of sort of enthusiasm was, it just didn't match. Yeah. Madge Sinclair as Queen Aeolian, Akeem's mother and Queen of Zamunda. Yeah, she had worked with uh, John Amos in Roots, and what I think is uh, possibly my favorite thing about uh, about this whole thing is that she actually worked with uh, James Earl Jones a few years later, five years later, um, to to be his queen again in The Lion King. And I don't think I ever knew that, but I just love <laughs> that the the team behind The Lion King actually reunited this uh, this couple as the king and queen of the jungle. Uh, and their daughter, or not their daughter, I should say, the the McDowell heiress, sh- uh, played by Sherry Headley, uh, playing the character Lisa McDowell, and uh, Akeem's princess. You know, the studio was pushing for uh, Vanessa Williams, and I have to say, I think I would have preferred Vanessa Williams. I mean, I think Sherry Headley is is fine in the part. It could just be that the part is just not written in a way where I really connected with her as a character i just felt or and and maybe it's just she just feels like such an 80s character but um i didn't really care for her very much and it could just be that that last moment in the script when she just randomly pops up in the in the bride's dress just really just is irked me to no end but um yeah you know i don't know it it's fitting that she went on to be in soap operas and stuff and i mean she did a lot of tv and other work but i don't know i I didn't. Uh, I didn't care for her that much. In in some, I don't know. Some films you just like this. Like you just need uh, an actress that can pull off the doe-eyed, um, you know, f- fall in love bit. And Sherry Headley, I think, was almost just sort of un- unbelievable uh, in that way. She just didn't give me that doe-eyed bit. I I believe she was off to law school. I believe she you know was off to to become a much more sort of hardened. Um, you know, uh, adult, and uh, I just didn't believe that she would have uh, fallen for this. I wanted to believe it. I want to believe like the the princess falls in love with the prince and that it's a happy ending. I deep down, I really want those stories to work out, and and it, you know, it just felt sort of manufactured. The the one of the strongest parts in the film, Paul Bates as Oha, a royal servant, 
Ah, uh, yes, the singing assistant. He uh, he was great. I enjoyed all of the stuff involving um, waking Prince Akeem and how Oha kind of leads this whole thing to kind of guide everybody to make sure that Akeem is 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 awakened appropriately and uh, wiped appropriately and bathed appropriately and <laughs> and sang to and everything. Uh, he was very funny, and I guess he's uh, the only one who popped up in the. Uh, the short-lived uh, attempt at a TV show with this. What else yes, has he yes. done? What else has Paul Bates done? True uh, Romance. You know, he's in Lethal Weapon, the TV series. He did. A, he had a bit in uh, one of the episodes in that film. Uh, yeah, True Romance, Eight Mile. I think it's. Lots I, of stuff. I, I I sort of want. I wish that he would use a different a different picture for his profile picture on IMDb. It's still his, his uh, <laughs> still coming, to, coming America to America thing, and then here we are. His, Kind of been a while. (laughs) Yep. His character photo. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway. Uh, And then there are a ton of fun uh, bit parts that show up in this movie. Uh, Including Eric LaSalle, which I would have appreciated if it was more of a bit part. (laughs) (laughs) What didn't you you particularly like about Eric LaSalle? I, I, you know, I know that he's been in uh, ER and and other things. I don't know. I I, I just didn't connect with him as Daryl. He just felt like um, a man who was given a part and he didn't know what to do with it. I really just struggled with his performance. Um, I, you know, I did appreciate that the script at least found a way to make it, you know, good prince versus bad prince. Here we are uh, as Daryl is kind of the prince of soul glow. Um, the uh, the Jerry Curl um, uh, goop for uh, for these guys, uh, you know, I don't know. I just felt like he, for the most part, was uh, just performing poorly. But then again, it's like you've got that moment where he he's knocking on Lisa's sister's window, and and you know she lets him in, and she's like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "Lisa broke up with me." And so she kind of, uh, you know, his Lisa's sister hooks up with him and is kind of like, what was that all about? It was such a poorly written scene, no context at all in, in relation to anything else that was happening here. And I think that it could just be that Eric was given these scenes and was just like, I don't know what to do with this. I guess I'll have to do with it the best I can. You know, I... I guess on on this point we disagree. I like Eric LaSalle in this movie. I can't believe I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I think this movie needs it, it it needs the dumb boyfriend and I think he actually does a fine job of of playing the kind of vapid um you know, prince, the vapid industrial royalty and I um uh, you know, I thought he did a great job and I could actually see why he ended up uh, you know, getting these bigger parts and the long running success he had on ER um, because I think he's, I think he's a very talented guy. And so I, I really liked him. And uh, even though I agree with you, it's a terribly written um, part, uh, but I think he does, you know, he does with what he is given. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Who else are you excited about? Well, you know, just like you said, the rest of the faces, uh, people that we recognize, Frankie Faison, um, you know, for me, he'll always be the guard in The Silence of the Lambs. Um, Louis Anderson pops up as a McDowell's employee. Samuel L. Jackson makes an appearance as the robber, which was great. It was like, oh, hey, look, it's Samuel L. Jackson. And he's still, you know, he was acting just like he did uh, back then as he still is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> no, wow. I, I do. I, I do like Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, Vondi Curtis Hall pops up as the basketball game vendor. Clint Smith, Eddie's friend, pops up as Sweets, uh, another of the old barbers. And uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, pops up in his film debut as a barbershop customer. I guess he actually had one line and it got cut. So he's just <laughs> sitting in the barber chair. <laughs> and he started shaving his head from then on. That's he right. was he's so mad and so broken. Uh, so you got to mention Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy reprise their roles as uh, Mortimer and Randolph Duke. We mentioned this when we talked about Trading Places. This was their bit. Uh, at the end of Trading Places, they get thrown out on the streets. And, and here we find them on the streets as uh, Akeem gives them a giant wad of cash. And they get to say, we're back. Mortimer, we're back. That was good fun. Oh, I, I thought the bit was great. a little bit long. I don't think they needed to knock on the window at the end. Uh, you know, come on, move on. Yeah, right. Be right. funny, I move on. All right. Do we have anything to talk about with the production? What'd you come up with? Uh, you know, the only other thing I wanted to say was Rick Baker. When you're doing special makeup effects and uh, you're making people, it, I don't think people understand enough how difficult and how complex that is. Because as people, we can really tell when uh, a, a makeup for a person is just not quite right. It's mm-hmm. obviously, obviously difficult with aliens and things like that. But if you see a person who is made to look like a different person or made to look older or younger or whatever it is, we can pinpoint that very easily. And we can we call it out. It's just like, oh, it just doesn't quite look right. I think Rick Baker really started honing these skills to to just create some amazing stuff. And I mean, you look where he went after this with Eddie Murphy and just with other people creating these other personas. I mean, it's an incredible art to create out of makeup a t- an entirely different person for somebody. This is definitely a credit on his on his resume if if it's not a overall terrific film. Yeah. Uh, we already mentioned Deborah Nadulman on the costumes. We talked about her and the controversy of their uh, the the fight between Landis and Murphy. But uh, in terms of the costumes, uh, they are very flamboyant. They're great. I actually love the costumes. Um, John, of course, it's his wife, but he does say that the costumes are what really sell this whole country of Zamunda. And I really tend to agree. I mean, I think there's such a variety of costumes from the the upper echelon to the lower echelon of people that you really can just get a sense that there is a you know a, a very interesting tapestry of people in this country. So I I really enjoy everything um, that uh, she came up with for the costumes. Um, not to mention the stuff that she came up with for America. I mean, I love the little McDowell's costumes. It's it's almost like a little Scottish <laughs> hat that they all yeah. are wearing. It's it's very funny. So I you know I I think that she did a, a marvelous job here. In terms of you know we already mentioned I already mentioned my trouble with the editing uh, uh, editing Malcolm Campbell and George Folsey Jr. Uh, apparently Folsey is uh, one of the producers of the film. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I, it, was, I, it just just did not did not work terribly well for me. I felt like it was just a little bit loose throughout with some glaring examples, but but generally a little bit loose. The music though. Boy, if you want to embrace your uh, 80s vibe, this is going to be how you do it. Yes, yes. Boy, you were having some uh, troubles with the uh, 80s music back in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. This is where it really hits, and uh, boy, does it hit hard. Uh, Niall Rogers, who is a music producer, who's done a lot of uh, stuff with a lot of big uh, performers, 
um, was brought on to actually score the film. You know, the score is like, yeah, it is what it is. It's it's not anything uh, that memorable other than, you know, he's got a nice difference between uh, Zamunda and America. But for the most part, I think it's just the, the, the performers he brought in to do all the songs. Wow. It's just so, so dated. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, the system performing the title track, Coming to America. The cover girls, Chico DeBarge, Michael Rogers, Mel and Kim, LaVert, JJ Fad, Nona Hendricks. It just, just artists that you're like, yeah, there's probably reason that nobody hears about those people anymore because it was just, you were so, so dated. So, so dated. can't believe you didn't actually get to Sister Sledge in your list. Well, Sister Sledge, <laughs> they have some good songs. That's why. <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm glad I recorded that. That's Sister right. Sledge, so that's going to be my new ringtone. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, this is not, I never actually owned this, uh, this soundtrack. No, this was not, um, this was not like Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Uh, let's do, what about award season? Uh, you know, uh, like, uh, the, the two people that we really, uh, liked for this, that got two Oscar nominations, Deborah Nadulman was nominated for best costume design. She lost to James Atchison for dangerous liaisons, uh, deservedly on both points, right? She deserved the nomination and he deserved to win. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, best makeup, uh, for, uh, Rick Baker. But uh, that lost to uh, Vay, Neil, Steve Laporte, and Robert Short for Beetlejuice. So very fanciful makeup. In this particular case, I mean, I love the makeup in Beetlejuice. A very creative character, very unique vision and everything. But man, creating these these totally different people, I don't know. I'm a little torn here. I kind of am leaning toward Rick Baker. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, you mentioned a TV pilot earlier. Uh, did it Did it air? Uh, you know, it uh, it never got picked up. Uh, this is the one that I said Paul Bates. He was the only one who actually returned for it. Um, it did not uh, get sold, but CBS uh, did this um, summer playhouse. This was the summer after the movie was released, uh, and they, they put it in their summer playhouse. It sounds like they just played a bunch of uh, unsold pilots, and so that was the only time that people were able to see it. And uh, yeah, that was all, nothing else. No other uh, No other big remakes. Well, there was a a, a, a Tamil version um, called My Dear Marthandan that was made. Uh, I don't know anything about that one other than the fact that it was made. <laughs> <laughs> Deep inquiry. That's what we call looks that like, segment. <laughs> looks like 1990. There you go. All right. All right. And of course, do we see see you next Wednesday, Andy? Did you spot it? It does pop up in here. This is what we talked about. This is... This was the uh, this is the la- the thing Landis's thing. He puts see you next Wednesday. See uh, our last Landis conversation for for details. Where do we see it? <laughs> it is in the subway. We get it uh, when Lisa jumps out of the subway, and uh, Akeem stays on and watches her run away. We see it up on the wall there. Uh, yeah, this big fantastic uh, sci-fi movie. See you next Wednesday. Good stuff. Awesome. I wonder if John Landis has just a whole wall of. The various see you next Wednesday posters. In I know, house. right? I would like the, that collection. <laughs> oh, that's uh, so funny. And, okay, so now this was uh, released in 1988, and it was kind of at the height of Murphydom. Uh, it has to have performed well. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Landis's uh, comedy cost $39 million to make, or about $79 million in today's dollars, which is a higher budget than the previous two films we've discussed, which is surely the sign of Murphy's box office successes, as you pointed out. Um, it did open June 29th, 1988, with no other new releases that weekend. Apparently, everyone was afraid of Eddie Murphy's box office strength and let him have the early 4th of July weekend. The movie opened in the number one slot, bumping Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Big, each down a peg. It held the number one slot for three weekends and went on to make an incredible $128 million domestically and $160.6 million overseas, or $586 million total in today's dollars. This puts Coming to America at the third highest grossing film in 1988 behind Rain Man and Roger Rabbit and gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $4.4 million. Surely even Prince Akeem would find this a princely sum. But that being said, according to Paramount, as far as it related to the Buckwald case, they made nothing. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jeez. Oh, All right, Andy. Well, I feel like this is going to be a, uh, a, a, a real tight heat at the bottom uh, of the list here. Uh, let's go ahead and rank it, shall we? <laughs> let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You know, you can just uh, swipe up on your uh, podcast device. And you'll see it in the show notes. You can jump to the show notes and click on the flick chart link, and that'll take you straight to this show, and you can add it to your list. Let's rank it and see how long it takes uh, to get to-, to the bottom of the list, to rank against <laughs> the women. Oh, let's find out. First up, coming to America, or hey, this might Whatever be it is you're going to say. <laughs> right, but this Sorry. this might be the new O oh Brother block, Joe versus the Volcano, which is so oh. exciting to see. <laughs> well, I'm going to say Joe versus Volcano, of course, but I I also would like to add as an addendum, uh, talk about a movie that for me gets all the stuff that Coming to America gets wrong right. Here, here, definitely. All right, all right next up, Coming to America or The Sandlot. The Sandlot. Totally The Sandlot. Coming to America or Bull Durham. Some Kevin Costner action. Bull Durham for me. Bull Durham, yeah, Bull Durham. Coming to America, this will be fun, or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible Indiana Jones. I would say that's actually not fun because we have to admit something horrible, but it's the truth. Yeah. Well, here we go. Coming to America... Or apt pupil. Boy, that was yeah, a tough no, one. This is this is the tough one. I think I I think I may lean toward apt pupil because of the, straight up because of the talent in the film. Um but it's it's close. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning toward coming to America only because of the makeup and those fun characters. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. But, All right. You've swayed me. I don't okay. Oh, Coming to America or Strange Days. I have so many problems with Strange Days, but I'm still going to pick it. Yeah, me too. Because of the trailer. <laughs> exactly. It has such a good trailer. Coming to America or Pritzy's Honor. I'm going to say Pritzy's Honor. Yeah, Pritzy's Honor. Coming to America or everybody's favorite, Blindness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't, Andy. I can't do it. I can cut the line. <laughs> Must be drawn here and no further. I am picking Coming to America. Me too, actually. 
And I'm the one who liked blindness. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, well, there we are. 274 out of 284. Wow, that's actually higher than I expected it to I know, go. right? Oh, dear. It's above well, Blindness, The Edge, Apt Pupil, The Last Boy Scout, The Omega Man, Children of the Corn, Scoop, Rush, Under the Cherry Moon, and The Women. Those are those are nine bad movies and a gross violation of flick chart. <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> what's the, what's your letterbox ranking for the uh for the good coming to America? Uh, you know, it had a few things that I uh enjoyed, but not enough to give it much of a rating. So I'm at one and a half with this one. I was at one and a half too, Andy, for the uh, barbershop bits. Yes, exactly. All right. Like mine. It's it's like kind of mines. a weighted score, even though. It's a, it's yeah. on a curve. I grade it on a curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so that that closes out our Eddie Murphy uh, in the eighties series, um, and uh, I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that series. I enjoyed getting a little breath of of the 80s, and now I'm ready to let it go in the wind. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we kind of close out this Eddie Murphy series, just kind of looking at, uh, at what he was doing in the 80s. I mean, I enjoy him as a performer. I think that he is uh, very vibrant and fun to watch on screen. And, I, you know, I mean, I liked that we at least, even if we didn't like coming to America, we at least got to get some of that makeup um, character stuff that he does so well. So I ended up having a pretty good time um, with this series. And it just made me sad again to kind of revisit his whole filmography and, and just kind of run down the list of the 54 credits that he has on there and just realize that most of the stuff on there is just, you know, stuff that just looks like garbage that I would never, ever want to watch. Um, other than like the Shrek films and Bowfinger, I mean, he's got a few in there. Mulan, I really enjoy um, but for the most part, it's like, you know, the small pocket of some of the films in the in the 80s. I mean, that's really when it was kind of uh, at his peak. And it makes me wonder if I would have enjoyed um, ending this series with The Golden Child more, because I, I certainly have memories of that film. I don't know if they're good. Memories. I, don't, I don't know yeah. if, it, if it would fall into the same camp as Coming to America, though, you know? I, yeah, I have exactly the same memory of Golden Child that I had of coming to America, and I almost don't want to put that to the test. Right. Uh, let, let me let me just live it, uh, live with the the memory of it. Uh, I you know I'm with you, and and uh, but I'll tell you what I came away with from the series thinking more than anything else is I am ready for the the next coming of of Eddie Murphy. Uh, you know, I, I really want to see what his next thing is. I still haven't seen Mr. Church, and I feel like I should. Uh, I know it has not get, gotten great reviews, but I want to see it for his performance uh, as as a man of of this age and and see what uh, what Eddie Murphy is capable of, uh, you know, not in these kinds of comedies. So, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I have renewed interest in in that film in particular. It's interesting. He is going to be playing. It looks like uh, Richard Pryor's father in a biopic directed by Lee Daniels called Richard Pryor's. It's something I said. Right, right, right. That's true. And you know what else I sh- I should say? Um, uh, I, I I this is maybe the third coming of Eddie Murphy because the second coming of Eddie Murphy was when I saw Dreamgirls, in which he was stellar. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed him in that movie. So 
Excellent, excellent. Where do we go from here? Well, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to have a, a, a genre series. We're going to talk about a few transgender films, which uh, should be kind of a fun uh, series to discuss. We're kicking it off with The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, mostly drag queens, but we do have a transgender character in there. Then we're going to jump over to Transamerica and end with The Danish Girl. So, uh, yeah, it should be a, a fun little series with some good movies to talk about. Have you? What of those have you seen? Have you seen all of those? I have not seen the Danish girl. That's the only one that I missed. I, I uh, I've seen uh, Priscilla and the Danish girl. I've not seen Transamerica. Oh, okay. I, you know, it's it's this is one of those genres that I'm really interested in in talking about because I am so uh, ill-equipped to to talk about it. So this should be delightful uh, researching this and trying to trying to kind of wrap my head around what these movies. Uh, accomplish that I'm sure I'm sure I'm not actually seeing uh, right right so I'm I'm really curious about these so uh, have you seen any great. of the have you seen any of the TV show Transparent I have not this is the Amazon uh, show right right exactly yeah I haven't either but I, I hear nothing but good things and uh, I it's one that I've been very curious about but you know finding uh, I, I so rarely get to just pick up and start a new TV show yeah. but it is one that I've had on my list of curiosity I the when I pick up a new TV show, it's usually for empty calories. You know what I mean? Like I usually pick up the ones that that really I'm I I can jump in, jump out of. Uh, um, so it's tough. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. You know, curse of riches, baby. Indeed, indeed. I gotta go to bed. All right, man. Well, I'm feeling a wee bit peckish. I think I'm gonna head on down to the Golden Arcs. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. You know, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say this. I, I I'm picking a one star because that's kind of what we do in this bit. And uh, I'm mostly I want to say one star people. That this is probably not the best place to to say uh, that your disc was bad. Right? Go to customer service and do. It. Can we move on beyond that? <laughs> one star people, move on because you're ruining it for the rest of us. And then I want to say, for you people who watch an Eddie Murphy movie, well, here you go. Disgusted, this uh, this reviewer says. Disgusted, one star, 2012. Thought this would be a good comedy. Unfortunately, it was not. As seen on television, a lot of suggestiveness and nudity. How unfortunate for these actors to sink that low just for a few dollars. Didn't even watch the whole movie. After about 20 minutes, my husband and I had had enough. Don't waste your money on this. Now, I'm just going to say, it's an Eddie Murphy movie in the 80s. <laughs> it, it, it's, don't be afraid of, uh, of uh, you know, boobs. Don't fear the boobs. It's well, not a good movie. You shouldn't see it. It's not a good movie. But this is not why suggestiveness and nudity and the f words don't fear the word they're just words i could go (laughs) on what is in the movie this is eddie murphy in the 80s well i've got a five star pete oh yeah you're bucking you're bucking the bit well i try to go opposite me that's what i try to do so yeah 
Uh, a customer, five star, says don't watch the trailers first. Rule number one about this movie is don't watch the trailers first. They give away all the funny parts. This is an extremely funny movie. Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall at their best. What a great life this prince has. Beautiful, naked, black girls that bathe you. And a luxurious <laughs> life. Anyway, besides the black naked girls, this movie is extremely funny. Especially how the prince doesn't know much about the American language. But if you watch the trailer first on DVD, then it will make the movie not funny anymore. This movie is even better than Eddie Murphy's newer videos. Well, exception of the Dr. Doolittle movies. This is a great movie. And I personally took this movie to mind and thought, hey, this is a good way to check if a girl is a gold digger before you ask them out. Pretending to be poor instead of pretending to be rich. An excellent idea. This movie made me laugh throughout the whole movie, and I especially liked the part where they talked about boxers. That was funny. <laughs> that wasn't serious. That was a spoof, right? That was a spoof. <laughs> I don't know, but this is the, one of the funniest reviews that I've seen in a long time. <laughs> And somebody who appreciates the boobs. <laughs> I mean, we could, we should calculate. I mean, you know, don't watch the trailer first. They give away all the funny bits in the movie. Let's just say that means you can get all the funny bits in two minutes and 34 seconds. But you can't get the part where they talk about the boxers. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, God. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 